Hello, everybody. It's August 19th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast, a daily excursion in which we make our way through the Bible in a year with portions each day from both the Old and New Testaments and daily dips into the Bible's prayer and songbook, the Book of Psalms, and the Treasure Chest of Wisdom, the Book of Proverbs. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and I hope that today's reading session will encourage you to hold fast to who God is and what He's done in the person of His Son. Yesterday, we began reading from the book of Esther. The hero of the story, interestingly enough, is not Esther or Mordecai, but the unseen one behind each scene, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We understood how Jesus of Nazareth is the greater Esther and the greater Mordecai. As the greater Esther, he not only acted to save his people in the face of possible death, he acted to save his people through his certain death. Jesus did not say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus knew that for him, there was no if in God's plan of redemption. He had come to be the sacrificial lamb to save his people from their sins. As the greater Mordecai, He is our kinsman, our intercessor, providing not only for our adoption, but for securing our favored position and enabling us to stand against our enemies. By legal means, by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, He releases us from the law of sin and death. Recently, I had the honor of composing a musical theater piece based on the book of Esther, and God willing, we will give you a taste of this at the end of today's podcast. There is so much to glean from reading this account. So let's start where we left off yesterday. We begin with chapter 4, and we will read through to the end of chapter 7. Esther agrees to help the Jews. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces Know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. 
Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther prepares a banquet. Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendors of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her, together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The King Honors Mordecai Chapter 6 On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, 
What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7 Esther Reveals Haman's Plot So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. 
And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And this is the end of our reading from today's portion from the Old Testament, from the book of Esther. And now we will take a few moments to recap and reflect upon what we've observed. In the first three chapters of the book of Esther, we are introduced to the setting, Susa, the magnificent winter capital of the Persian Empire, the main characters, Xerxes, Vashti, the counselors, Mordecai, Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, Haman, and his anti-Semitic plot to exterminate the entire Jewish population on the 13th of Adar. In a host of seemingly accidental happenstances, Queen Vashti is banished from the king. Hadassah, the Jewish orphan, under the care of her cousin Mordecai, is taken captive against her will into the palace of women. She is confronted with the prospect of being separated forever from loved ones, to be chosen by the king to be his queen, or otherwise to spend her lifetime confined to the house of concubines. She happens to be shown favor by the king's eunuchs and attendants, and chosen by the king to be his new bride, Queen Esther. The king loved her more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. Esther chapter 2 verse 17. Her cousin Mordecai happens to discover an assassination plot being arranged by two men who guarded the king's door. Mordecai's discovery of this pernicious attempt on the king's life is reported to Esther, who in turn warns the king. The would-be assassins, Bigthan and Teresh, are found guilty of conspiracy to murder the emperor and are executed on the gallows. Mordecai's saving act is recorded in the official chronicles, but he is not publicly recognized or rewarded for the deed. Instead, Haman, a descendant of King Agag and the Amalekites with whom God declared war in Exodus chapter 17 verse 16, seems to take the credit for exposing the plot and is promoted as Grand Vizier. All citizens are ordered to bow to him, but Mordecai, a Benjamite, will not bow, knowing Haman's true identity and motive. The author of the book emphasizes the ancestral background of both Haman and Mordecai. Haman is a descendant of the Amalek king Agag, and Mordecai is a descendant of the Israeli king Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Each was a thorn in the side of the other. The Amalekites attacked the weak, the elderly, women and children of Israel who straggled behind as the newly formed nation made its way through the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17. King Saul, through disobedience, failed to be God's instrument in bringing judgment upon the house of Agag in 1 Samuel chapter 15. As a result, Agag's descendant, Haman, revives the satanic strategy to utterly destroy the Jewish people, the seed of promise, throughout the world. Haman chooses a day that he believes would be favorable to his cause of annihilating the Jews and pleasing to the Ahuras, the Zoroastrian gods of Persia. He does this by casting the poor, the plural form is Purim, meaning lots. The lots fall on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, eleven months in the future. Haman goes to the king to get permission to kill the Jews, but he does it in such a way as to keep hidden the identity of these people whom he claims are a threat to the security of the Persian Empire. 
Xerxes wants to be spared of the details and passively gives Haman his royal signet ring with permission to do as he pleases. Haman then issues the command that, on the 13th of Adar, citizens of Persia were to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Throughout the Bible, we see that there is hostility between the lineage of the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the virgin-born Christ, who would be a descendant of David and Abraham, and the seed of the serpent, Satan, who is actively at work through principalities and powers. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Earlier in our reading of the Old Testament, we saw how this spiritual war was on display when Amalek, a descendant of Esau, attacked the vulnerable children of Israel at Rephidim. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, we read, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. But God's people do forget. There is a practical application here. We think we know better. We compromise our obedience. We spare Agag, who represents the ways of the flesh. We forget we have been given instruction to mortify the flesh in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 and Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. We forget that we are in a battle in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. We don't always recognize the forces that oppose the promise. King Saul thought far too much of himself and far too little of God's commands and promises. What about us? Now Mordecai, a descendant of King Saul, faces Haman, a son of King Agag, he is face to face with the enemy. Mordecai does not deal with Haman by the sword or with his own strength, but he resists Haman's authority, standing firm on what God has said. Then, in humility, sackcloth and ashes, he appeals to God with fasting, weeping, and wailing. It is implied, though not explicitly stated, that Mordecai has hope that deliverance will come from the Lord somehow, no matter what, according to his promise to Abraham, that his seed would be preserved to bring blessing to all nations. Mordecai appeals to Esther, asking her to seize the opportunity given to her by her royal position as queen and go before the king and plead for her people. Esther must count the cost. Will she stand true to the promise of her heritage as Hadassah the Jew, or will she hold back in the interest of self-preservation and worldly satisfactions as Esther the queen? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther chapter 4 verse 14 What about us? Are we willing to take up our cross and stand true to the gospel? Listen to the words of Jesus. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, 
he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Up until this point, Esther is on the receiving end of other people's counsel. Now she decides to identify with her people and make whatever sacrifice is required of her. From here on in, Esther is seen taking authority and gives the instructions. She is truly acting as queen. As Christians, we have been given royal status in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, and we have been given authority to act as his agents in the world. We will be called to rise to the occasion and act on his behalf even when it costs us. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Esther chapter 4, verse 17. Esther's fasting for three days and nights is a picture of her dying to self. It is interesting how according to the Jewish reckoning of time, Esther's three days, night or day, in Esther chapter 4 verse 16, is consistent with Esther taking action on the third day, in Esther chapter 5 verse 1. This may give some light on how Jesus' prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection fulfills the sign of Jonah's three days and nights in the belly of a large fish in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, and Jesus rising on the third day in Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, chapter 17 verse 23, and chapter 20 verse 19, Luke chapter 9 verse 22, chapter 24 verse 7, and verse 46. There is evidence in ancient documents that in the Hebrew culture the phrases three days and three nights three days, night or day, and on the third day refer to an equal time span. On the third day, Esther rises and makes a bold approach to address the king, not that she had any right of her own to do so, but appealing to the golden scepter of the king's mercy. The golden scepter is extended to her, and she is shown favor. She intercedes, but to the reader's surprise, it is not yet for her ultimate request. She does not yet ask for the deliverance of her people. We are not told why. Is it because she sensed that the timing was not right? That hearts needed to be prepared? God knows when we don't know. And that is one of the main points of the book. God has his hidden purposes even when what happens in our lives seems mysteriously inexplicable at the time. The hidden wheels of providence are working in the background and ultimately advance God's purposes. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. 
Esther's first request is that the king and Haman join her for a banquet. Haman is thrilled that he has the queen's attention, as well as the king's, and gladly attends her banquet. When the king asks what the queen's request might be, once again the queen seems to put the big request on hold. She asks that the king and Haman attend a second banquet. While Haman's pride is fed at the first banquet, Haman is once again irritated when he sees Mordecai, who continues to shame him by stubbornly refusing to bow. He complains to his wife Zeresh and his friends that Mordecai continues to snub him in public. Zeresh and friends suggest that he need not ruin his royal banqueting with the bothersome thoughts of Mordecai's stiff-necked refusal to bow. Zeresh suggests Haman builds a gallows 75 feet tall and hang Mordecai on it. Haman enthusiastically concedes to this plan. Somehow, Mordecai's identity as a Jew is hidden from Zeresh. Esther's identity as Mordecai's cousin and a Jew remains hidden both to Haman and her husband, Xerxes. The central climax of the book takes place between Esther's first banquet in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and the second banquet in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. It is then that Xerxes has his sleepless night and discovers that he failed to honor his savior, Mordecai. It is then that Haman builds his gallows and in the early hours of the next day goes to the king to get permission to hang Mordecai upon it. It just happens that Haman is on his way to see the king when the king is needing the advice of his most trusted counselor. King asks Haman, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman, imagining that this hypothetical question refers to the king's desire to honor himself, asks for the highest possible honors the king has at his disposal, the king's robes, the king's horse, and the king's authority to be given to the man whom he desires to honor. He suggests that the king's nobles escort him on parade throughout the city. To Haman's surprise, the king tells Haman to do all that he has proposed for the honor of Mordecai. He is to leave no detail undone. This is where the tables start turning, and the treatment that Haman desired for the Jews begins to fall on him. Haman is shamed once again. When Haman's friends and his wife hear of this, they predict his downfall. After Haman has been walking alongside Mordecai, who is riding the king's horse in a parade given in his honor, he returns home dirty, disheveled, and humiliated, just in time to have the king's servants call him away to the queen's second banquet. It is at the second banquet that Queen Esther makes her ultimate request. She asks the king to spare her life and that of her people. Xerxes is bewildered. Who are her people? Who has threatened the life of the queen? Who could have plotted such evil? Esther exposes Haman as the author of the edict, calling for her death and the death of all Jews. The king gets up in a rage and exits briefly into the palace garden. Haman is terrified and begs Esther to spare his life. In doing so, he falls upon the couch where she is reclining. As the king returns, it appears that he is molesting the queen. The king is outraged that Haman would dishonor him by attacking his wife. It is an insight on the incurable wickedness of the human heart that Xerxes seems more bothered by this dishonor than the prospect of the Jewish people being annihilated. He summons his guards who cover Haman's head. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, 
advises the king that quite conveniently he could hang Haman on the very gallows that Haman had prepared for hanging Mordecai. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Esther chapter 7 verse 10. This is a prophetic picture of God's justice being satisfied when the reign of sin, represented by Haman, is put to death on the cross. He who knew no sin, that is Christ, willingly allowed himself to be judged and penalized as sin, while himself remaining sinless. This fact is vindicated by the resurrection in Psalm 16 verse 10. At the cross, the tables are turned on the enemy in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15. Virtue is ultimately rewarded and vice is punished. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now let's move on to our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-26. through 26. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit." For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, 
and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this concludes the reading of today's portion from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now let's take a few moments to think about what we've just read. 12 and 4. That is how you can remember the location of the chapter numbers in the New Testament that address the subject of spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4. Today's reading covers Paul's teaching on the interdependence of each member's gifted ministry in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts sovereignly, just as He wills, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Let us appreciate the variety of gifts and ministries in the body of Christ. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they need discernment. In the past, they were led astray by false temple oracles to worship idols. Don't be led by mere impressions or feelings. We must cling to God's Word and the preeminent truth that Jesus is Lord. Spiritual gifts are not to be prostituted for the glory of self, a group, or a cause, but only used for the glory of God and the good of others. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the body of Christ in its local expression is to function as a unit with every member appreciating the unique contributions that other members make that benefit the body as a whole. And now for our penultimate stop, the book of Psalms, Psalm 36, verses 1 through 12. How precious is your steadfast love to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 describe the life of the person who gives no regard to God's self-revelation in His Word. They are not in a right relationship with God. This is called wickedness in the Bible. There is no fear of God, no sense of His presence, His holiness, and their ultimate accountability to Him. This person is self-deceived. In verse 2, His speech is unwholesome. 
He is foolish in his thinking and lacks wisdom for his decisions. He gives in to the patterns of the flesh and does not reject what is wrong. In contrast to man in his corruption, the psalmist pictures God in his faithfulness. His love is steadfast and together with his faithfulness reaches to the skies. The majesty of his righteousness is likened to the mountains. The greatness of his justice is likened to the vastness of the seas. God mercifully provides rescue and refuge in verses 6 through 7. And in verse 9 we read, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Is that not true? By his light we see all things. The light of his word illuminates our perception of everything else. The psalm ends with a prayer in verses 10 through 12. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Now for our final stop in our Bible reading tour, we go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. What strongholds has the enemy established in your life that need to come down? How is your pursuit of God's kingdom and righteousness? Is it loyal? I would like to lead in prayer as we close, and then afterwards as a bonus we will give you an excerpt from the musical Esther. Lord, we are reminded of your supreme sacrifice, in that your Son came to die and deliver us from the sentence of death. It was not a question of, if I perish, I perish, but he knew his death was certain. He willingly offered himself to perish as our substitute, that we should not perish. In doing so, he satisfied your justice and establishes peace. Give us the courage, through the Holy Spirit, to step out in loyalty to Christ and for the benefit of others. When a chance for deliverance exists, and there are evils we can resist, help us to take the risk for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, Amen. It may not be all that we would wish, but when a chance for deliverance exists, and there are evils that we can resist, we must take the risk for such a time as this. Yeah.
not be all that we would hope for. It may not be all that we would wish.